Are you guys ready for the word of God? I need to hear you say like, I'm ready. Say it again. I'm ready. All right, Todd, you can take your seats. I'd also like to draw attention to the screens, um, but not too much attention to the screens because, you know, just as we, you know, there are things we need to do to stay ahead of things breaking. The projectors that were with the old screens were failing, and uh, so there was a need to see them replaced. And they're really wonderful because now I can I could read this from my office. <laughs> but I, I would also like to say I'd also like to say thanks to Corey and those who were involved with it last night. And I, I just have to share this. Corey did this morning. Last night he was here for like three hours troubleshooting. He hadn't eaten. He's he calls Liam, their number three son, to put Gra- uh, Graham to bed, and uh, so he's. He's getting hangry, troubleshooting. His wife calls and says, hey, how you doing? Or maybe he called her. I'm not sure which way it went. But he explains what, what he's doing. And she says, she's in New York City right now for um, work. And he says, so what are you doing, Allie? And she says, I'm sitting in Little Italy right now eating the best spaghetti I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I think, ah, I think, oh, the support that a spouse brings to a man in ministry <laughs> was not expressed in that moment. But uh, I, we are so thankful for the time and effort that Corey has, has put into this and sacrificed. We're so thankful to have him be, um, to be around. And uh, let's enjoy these, but let's also remember uh, they're, not, they're a piece that helps us remain vertically focused in our worship on our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the King of glory. And we should always be looking to see what he has done for us. The shedding of his blood on the cross... Him purchasing us, purchasing, yeah, that's the right word. Him buying us, serving as our propitiation, the propitiation for our sins so that we could be in relationship with him, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, entering into his kingdom, finding our place with him, reigning with him. And I'm going to, you know, I want to rob from Resurrection Sunday, and I think the Lord would be okay with that. You know, we're, we're on Palm Sunday right now. It's the beginning of our Passion Week. And we really want to make sure we set our minds and our focus on, on who the person of Jesus Christ is and his coming and what he um, is about to do for us. But as we think about who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, it ends, it culminates with, how many kings do you know experience victory through death? That their reign doesn't end upon their death. Their reign continues on and even becomes more magnificent through their death. That's our, that's our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, of course, church, we together should say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to Jesus Christ in the highest. Right, church? Well, you're already seated. And uh, I'm going to kneel before the Lord as we pray this morning. And um, I want him, as always, I'll say this every single time I preach, I don't want you to hear from me. I don't want you to be distracted by me or my words or my demeanor or my fumblings or my exaltations. I want you to hear from the Lord Jesus. So it's my prayer that he would stand between you and me and that you would hear the word he has for you today, church. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we approach you now is our King and our Lord. Lord, there is nothing in this world that is in comparison with who you are. I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for us, that you came humble on a donkey, expressing humility, 
to ultimately serve as the sacrifice that would save us from ourselves. What kind of love that is, we cannot comprehend. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And now, Lord, as you have given your family the gifting of your Holy Spirit in each one of us, I pray now, Lord, that you would pour yourself out on us, that you would speak through your word, that you would declare to us the very things you have for us today, and you would do a mighty work in the life of your church. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unlikely victory, I would call that an unlikely victory, um, that, that the King of glory, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, won. Who would have thought the King of glory would usher in his kingdom through his death? I, for one, would not have considered that, it that way, and so I'm very thankful that I have the Word of God in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in me to help lead me and guide me and direct me in the thinking and the receiving of that truth. Um, the death of a king typically means the end of his reign. But with Jesus Christ, it meant he continued on reigning and reigning even more so now. You know what? Even the disciples in Acts chapter 1, they expressed to him as he's standing before them in his risen form, they're, st- they're saying to him, they didn't completely understand the fullness of who Jesus was and what he was about to do and what his kingdom stood for when they said, are you about now to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's an unlikely victory that he won. I think about the video um, that was played just before the last song that we sang, and there were two examples uh, that John Piper, didn't he sound really young, 1985? That was John Piper sharing an unlikely victory that you see through King Jehoshaphat with Judah. And I know you know this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? Standing before them, before Israel, was a Moabite and an Ammonite on army that is, that is described as a horde. It filled the land in front of them. And I know you know this passage. Israel says, Judah says to God, We are powerless against this great horde that has come against us. We do not know what to do, but this Our eyes are fixed on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. And then in 2 Chronicles, again in chapter 20, verses 15 and 17, God says to them, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it is the Lord's. The battle is not yours, but it is the Lord's. And he says, Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And he brings one of the most spectacular and unlikely victories to the people of Israel that they had ever seen. You heard John Piper refer to, they put the choir in the front and they sang the song of victory even before the battle was fought. And when they went, and when they went up to go against the army, they were all dead. The Lord had thrown them into confusion. Not one had escaped. He threw them into complete confusion and they killed themselves. The victory was the Lord's, and they didn't have to do anything but stand by and praise the Lord of glory for the unlikely victory that he brought to them. And then, one that hits really close to us because it's, it's during our day, 1956, when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint stood across the river facing the Alka Indians, wondering what's going to happen. And I love what he says, what John Piper draws out with that unlikely victory. None of us would have considered it. As they crossed the river, their lives were taken, but they were protected. Not a one of us 
apart from the Holy Spirit in us, could look at that and say that was a victory for the Lord. How many of us would have said that was a fail, that was a miss, the Lord did not protect them, but what did he protect them from? He protected them from cowardice, he protected them from fear, from going home and buying a house in the suburbs, living a safe life, counting on someone else to share the gospel with this dangerous people. That's the protection. That's what makes the victory unlikely, is it happened the way the Lord wanted it to happen, not the way man would expect it to happen. The King of Glory brought a victory in and through the lives of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those three others that still resound today through the body of Christ as it declares the victory that Jesus Christ brought to them as they stood and faced their own deaths. I wonder this, church, if we can see the King of Glory like they did. And if the day when he returns again on his white horse, ready to pass judgment on the earth, if he'll find such faith in the life of this church. As we open the word together today, I'm going to ask my prayer warriors to continue to pray. I know you've been praying. Keep praying that the Lord would declare his word to his church. And I'm ready. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus permitted himself to be recognized as king. Israel desperately wanted a king. They found themselves in the time of Jesus under Roman rule, and they were tired of it. The oppression that they brought, the slavery that they induced, and they placed Israel under. They were ready for a king to be out from under the heavy oppression of Roman rule, someone that would save them. But here's what I find very interesting. It wasn't just then that Israel wanted a king. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to go back to the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you want to turn there now, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's the first time that we see Israel asking for a king. It's after the period of the judges which lasted 300 years. 300 years, this was the, this was the, um, the life of Israel. Two, two different places in the book of Judges, it records that there was no king over Israel, which means they didn't recognize God as king. There was no king over Israel. And, and because there was no king over Israel, every man did exactly what he wanted to do. He just did what he wanted to do. And so as man did what he wanted to do, he would find himself as a result of his sinful lifestyle, serving other gods in a place of oppression, being oppressed by neighboring nations. They would cry out to the Lord, and it says early in the book of Judges that God became patient. He would become impatient with the suffering of his people Israel. And so he would act. He would bring to them a judge, someone that would straighten things out for them, someone that would bring them relief from the nation that was oppressing them, would conquer them. They would experience seasons of peace. They would experience a season of peace. And then guess what would happen? They would fall into a time of complacency. They would run after other gods. They would enter into a further lifestyle of sin, cry out to the Lord. He would rescue them with a judge. It, did, it was like that for 300 years. And they come to the end, the time of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we see Israel finally saying, enough of that. We want a king. We want a king. 
And so turn to Samuel, if you're not there yet, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look at verse, from verses 1 to 22. And we're just going to read through this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, or walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, preferred a justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So the table is set right now for the elders of Israel to come and say, Samuel, we like you. Your sons don't lead the way they should. We're going to seize this opportunity, and this is our chance to demand a king. And so they do. They say, on in verse 5, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are doing so, so they are doing so now. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them and show them the ways of the kings of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel, starting in verse 10, provides the warning. And I want you to listen for how often it says, He will take or his referring to the king that they want to be placed over them. So Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the way, the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some will plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so then we see the Lord granting Israel's request. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may, may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all these things, or all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey, the voice, obey their voice and make them king. 
Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Why was Israel not satisfied with God being king over their nation? Here's what I believe. Israel struggled to live by faith in a God they couldn't see. They wanted to live by sight. And see a a king do for them that they saw kings do for every other nation around them. They wanted a king that they could see. They wanted a king that would lead them in the way they wanted to be led. So in essence, here's what they wanted. They didn't want a king to serve. They wanted a king that would serve them. That's what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because he wouldn't lead them in the way they wanted him to lead. And he wouldn't take them to places that they wanted him to take them. This is what they said. We want a king that would make us look like all the other nations. We know that Jesus tells us that we're to be set apart from them. We're to take on a different look from them than, than the nations around us. He wanted a God that would he wanted excuse me he wanted a king that would make them look like all the other nations. He wanted they wanted a king that would judge them like they saw the kings judging other nations. They wanted a king that would go before them, would take care of their business for them, and they wanted a king that would go before them in battle and fight their battles for them. And it's interesting. If I put myself in the place of Samuel, I would feel rejected. Because of all the judges that have come before me, now I stand as prophet and judge before Israel, and they're saying, we want a king. We're not pleased with the way things are going, with you as our judge, and God as king. And you know what God says? He says, Samuel, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just as they always have from the day I brought them out of Egypt. And think of all he did for them, is he brought them out of Egypt. And then to stand on that day and be rejected verbally rejected. Samuel, we don't want God as our king anymore. We want another. Live by faith, not by sight. That was hard for Israel. So they rejected the kingship of God in their lives because they couldn't see him and because he didn't lead in the way they wanted him to lead. And I wonder this about us. I wonder this about me often. How often does that describe me? How often do you see that describing you when it comes to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life? Why do you want Jesus to be lord of your life? And so let's fast forward a thousand years. That was a thousand years before the life of Christ. Let's come now to the time of Jesus. King Jesus came in the flesh, and they still did not recognize him. And that's our triumphal entry today. He came, he came a thousand years later. They couldn't see their king, God as their king, in the time of Samuel. And now we see King Jesus allowing himself to be recognized and praised as king as he enters into Jerusalem a thousand years later. Here he is in the flesh and and. Luke chapter 19 records it, that they did not know the hour of their visitation. And we see Jesus weeping, weeping over Israel because they did not still, in the flesh, recognize who was before them, their king. They didn't recognize him. 
And I think it's because they weren't looking for what Jesus was. They weren't expecting a king to come as Jesus did. He is not what they were hoping for. Israel wanted a king that would serve them in the way they wanted to be served. And so I want to ask you this as we, as we move on into Matthew chapter 21. As you consider Israel and their request for a king, and you think over your life, do you really want Jesus as king over your life? Do you really want him as king over your life? As he stands at the door and knocks, are you listening for him? As he says to you, I want you to come to me now. I know you're weary. I know you're heavy laden. I know the burden of your life is heavy. And it's too much for you to bear. And he says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus. So when you look for King Jesus, do you even know what you're looking for? Do you even desire relationship with him and lordship with him being lord over your life? Do you even desire the right things from him? Do you want King Jesus to be king over your life is the big question today. What compels you to be in relationship with him? to submit to him, and to let him be Lord of your life. Turn now, if uh, you will, please, to Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. All right? Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through um, what has been called the triumphal entry, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples, the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, 
Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. When I think back over my, the course of my entire life and every Palm Sunday church experience, and I take that and I set it next to the many, many times I've read over this passage over the last two or three weeks. As I read through this passage, I'm left with more questions than I have answers. And here's why. Triumphal entry is what we've been taught it has been. But when you look and you, and you read through this passage and you look at how Jesus came in, you look at how the people responded to him, knowing that Jesus knew exactly what was going, and what, going on and what was in the heart of every individual that was, that was surrounding him on that day, knowing exactly where he was headed in five or six days, depending on the commentator you read. Good Friday. It seems more like a suicide mission than a triumphal entry. It seems more like a triumphal exit than it does a triumphal entry. And I wonder what it felt like to be Jesus receiving the praises of those that he knew and didn't mean it entirely. And five or six days from now, they were going to run from him and reject him and place him on a cross. He knew what was coming. We know today that it was a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, heading where he was headed. But in that moment... There wasn't a whole lot of triumph happening. Now, we can walk through this passage, and we will, and we can see some really incredible things about this passage, about how, who Jesus is and what he did and about how people responded. Like, it's amazing to me, and here's what I love. Here's what I love about being in relationship with Jesus Christ. He never calls us to do things on our own. He sent the disciples out by two, and he sent them to an individual to say, Hey, can I borrow your donkey and its colt for the Lord? Now, there are three different ways that you can look at that. There's, there's disagreement from commentators as they read over this. Number one... Some believe that Jesus had a, pre, um, had a plan laid out beforehand that he had spoken with the individual and said, on this day, this is going to happen. There's another that believes that just simply by the power of who Jesus was and what his expectations were, that in his, through his divine nature and divine plan, the man just said, okay, I'm going to hand it over to you. It's very interesting to me. And then, and then a third perspective would be this that the man knew who Jesus was. And when he heard that Jesus had need, he loved who Jesus was and what he stood for, and so he just freely turned it over. But here's the truth of it all. Jesus, by his divine power and divine plan, caused it to happen so that it would happen just as it did. And it was so that prophecy would be fulfilled. And we see it in verse 4. The Lord needs them, in verse 3 it says, and he sent them at once. This took, filled, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the, the foal of a beast of burden. It took place to fulfill prophe- prophecy. I love the obedience of the disciples that they went and did. I can tell you if I was one of them and he was sending me to a stranger, stranger to ask if we could use his car without having any idea who he was or what he was going to do, I would, have, I would have struggled with that. But with obedience, they went. The disciples responded with obedience. The disciples threw the crowds before Jesus and after Jesus were the disciples. They were those that followed Jesus day in and day out. They throw their cloaks on the donkey. Jesus, in humility, sits on it. He lets them do that for them. And they spread their cloaks on the road. They cut branches from trees. They spread them on the road. And the crowds went before and after singing the praises of Jesus. And Jesus, with humility, receives them. And so we have three different groups of people here. We have the disciples responding to Jesus. We have the crowds in the city. The whole city was stirred up, and they're saying, who is this? If you take into account... What a, what a typical coronation is for a king. There is absolutely zero question what's going on when this king is coronated. The entire city knows who is coming, what he stands for, and who he's going to be. There's no question about who he is. But you see the people of the city wondering, who is this? And then, of course, as you see Jesus with much boldness, and zeal for his house, overturning tables and chairs, and declaring, this is my house, and it shall be called a house of prayer. My, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then, of course, Jesus continues, and he performs supernatural by he, the supernatural by healing the blind and the lame. And it amazes me even still today as I read that the chief priests and the scribes It says they saw the wonderful things he did and they still wouldn't accept him for who he was. They saw the wonderful things he did and they heard the children crying out and they were indignant. They were indignant because Jesus coming in as he did, permitting the things to happen as they were happening, people declaring the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ They didn't like it. They didn't like it. And Jesus says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city, out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Many wonderful things for us to glean. But here here it is, church. Lots of awesome stuff in that. But here is the essence of this passage. Your king has come. Your savior is here. Your messiah, King Jesus, is is here, and he is here in the flesh. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. That is the fulfillment. Jesus coming on the donkey, the way he did, is the fulfillment of the prophecy that comes from Zechariah in chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, where it says, and this is it, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
That's the central message of this passage, church. And if there is nothing else you glean from today, this is what it is. That your king has come, your savior is here, your Messiah, King Jesus, is here. And he came in the flesh on that day. And the greatest sadness of this passage is when Jesus came in, his own people didn't recognize him. The disciples wanted him to be that. They wanted to believe that that's who he was. But they reveal their true hearts and their true doubt and their lack of faith when the city is crying out, who is this? They say, he's the prophet, Jesus. They don't say he's the savior. They don't say he's the king, the Messiah. They still call him the prophet because in their heart of hearts, they still wonder, who is this guy? They're hoping he is. But the disciples spoke betrayal when they said they fell short in declaring him as the prophet. The whole city, who is this? What is all this ruckus that is being caused by this man that's coming in on a donkey? They didn't know who he was. And the Pharisees revealed their hearts yet again as they said, Jesus, shut the people up because what they are saying is out of line. And he wouldn't do it. That's the greatest sadness is that his own people did not recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? He was not what they were looking for. They had the wrong idea. They had wrong expectations. If you go back a thousand years from that moment, that was very similar to Israel just after the time of Judges. He did not fit the mold of king as they knew it. He did not fit the mold as, ki- as king, fit the mold of king as they knew it. And so just as at the time of the judges, they wanted a king that would serve them, not a king that they would serve. He didn't meet their expectations, and he didn't satisfy their selfish desires or fulfill their own selfish agendas. Now think about it, though. How exciting would it have been for us to be there to witness all of this taking place? I think it would have been extremely exciting. But it's really easy for us now 2,000 years later to look back and maybe pass even a whiff of judgment on the Pharisees in their response to Jesus or even the disciples in their doubt and the people in the city not even knowing who Jesus was. It would be easy to, to even pass a whiff of judgment. But who would you most have related to in this? Would it have been any one of those three? And so here's my personal confession to you. When I read through this and I look at the disciples' response, when I look at the city, the response of the people in the city and the Pharisees, there are bits and pieces of each one of them that I can relate to. So even if I say I would love to have been there, taken all of the scripture from, from past Jesus in this moment, and I didn't have any knowledge of that, I would have doubted just like the disciples. I would have wondered, yeah, I've seen him do some pretty amazing things. I've seen him feed 5,000 people. I've seen him heal the sick. I've seen him cast out demons. But I still would wonder, is this the one spoken of by the prophets? I would have had doubts. 
And left to myself, if I was someone in the city and I had not followed Jesus around, I might have responded the same way. This guy is making a mess of things. Can we just have him settle people down? And then, of course, I would, I would have related. If I would have been a Jew, someone that was a student of the word, I really believe I would have been. I could have most related with their self-righteous Pharisees and passing judgment on Jesus and not receiving him for who he was. Because he was upsetting the course of the way things had been going for so long and as the Pharisees saw fit. I could have related to each one of those. What about you? And so here we are with this passage before us looking at what happened in the time of Samuel, Samuel, the request that Israel made, the rejection of God as their king. They couldn't follow him by faith. Here we are a thousand years later, their king, Jesus, God coming in the flesh, and they still didn't recognize him. And so the question again, church, is this. Do you want King Jesus to be king over your life? Do you even know this man who came riding in on a donkey with humility? So I'm going to share just a few things that speak to who the person of Jesus is. And I shared with the, I shared with the worship team beforehand, I could stand up here with 10,000 other preachers and communicators of the word for the next thousand years and we would fall short in declaring to you who Jesus is. And so here's what that means. As much as I want to very clearly declare to you who the person of Jesus Christ is, the one that came riding in with humility on this donkey, I'm going to fall short, and so most of it is up to you with your time in the Word, spent with Jesus, praying to Him, crying out to him to open your eyes, to peel back the blinders that you, so that you can see him for all he is and for all that he brings. And so here are a few. Here's what this Jesus is that came riding in on a donkey. Jesus is love. He is love. It's Palm Sunday. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Love. Jesus is love. God is love. Now think about it in these terms. Think about it from God the Father's perspective. Here's my Son, not high and lifted up as he should be, riding into the city on a donkey. He's humbled himself before these people. And I know what they're going to do. They're going to reject him, and they're going to beat him. And they're going to hang him on a cross. And he's going to say, Father, forgive them. Now, this is me thinking in my human flesh as a father. Who in their right mind is going to be okay with that? That is an expression of love from God the Father that no 
man, no woman, no child, no person on the face of this earth can understand. The love of God the Father that he would do this for us. And then the love of Jesus Christ that he would, with much obedience and humility, submit himself to God the Father's plan. Because he loves you and he loves me so much that he would go and do what he did on the cross for us. Have you ever thought what it might have felt like to be God the Father? Have you ever thought about what it might have felt like to be Jesus in that moment? Listen to this. Luke chapter 19 records it right after the tri- what's considered the triumphal entry. And what does Jesus do? He drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will, see, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Declaring what would happen a few years down the road in 70 A.D. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Hey, listen, if you're sitting in this church right now, do you see and know the hour of visitation that Jesus Christ has brought upon you in your life? Do you see him? Do you know him? Are your eyes open to see this one who has come? He wept over Israel because they rejected him right after the time of Judges, and they rejected him again as he came in on a donkey. Jesus' love, and what a magnificent expression of the love of God the Father that he would send his son on our behalf. Do you really know who Jesus is? Here's another one for you. He's humble. We see it. He humbled himself to ride in on a donkey where most kings during their coronation would have been in a jewel-studded chariot or riding on the back of a white horse with a jewel-encrusted crown and a scepter that declares their power over their nation, but not Jesus. He came in humble. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus says this of himself, even the Son of Man came not to serve, or excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hey, what did God say to Israel about what your king would look like? He's going to take this. He's going to do this. Essentially, he's going to serve himself with you, turning you into his slaves, making you do his bidding. And what does Jesus say of himself? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I can tell you this, that's the kind of king I want to serve. Is one whose love and humility is so incredibly great. That leads by example what it means to be humble and what it means to serve. Jesus is humble and he came to serve. Do you even know who this Jesus is, church? He is love. He is humble. Jesus is the one who came to save sinners. Matthew 9, verse 13 says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He came for sinners. He didn't come from those that were dependent on their own self-righteousness, believing that they had nothing wrong with them. He didn't come for them. He came for the ones that freely admitted, I'm a mess, I'm a disaster. The way I run my life has proven to be folly. I've made a mess of it. And I'm ready for someone to straighten it out. That's the one that Jesus came to save. The sinner. The sinner. Church, do you even know who Jesus is? Do you want King Jesus to be king over your life? He came to save you. Not for those who think they have it all together, but for those that know they don't. It's three things that speak to who King Jesus is. Now listen, here's what I want to share with you as it relates to, you know, if there's a king, if there's a King Jesus, then that means there is a kingdom that we can all be a part of if we're willing to accept his lordship over our lives. And so I know some of us need to hear, well, what's in it for me? Well, I don't want you to walk away from here thinking first and foremost, what's in it for me? I want you to walk away from here today thinking, this is who Jesus Christ is. And the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the humility and the awesomeness that make him who he is in all of his righteousness and purity is where my eyes should constantly be. Desiring to know that one. And you know what? What he did on the cross for us was a magnificent thing. But what made it magnificent is because it was Jesus. It's because it was Jesus And our singular heart's desire should be for him and for what he has in his kingdom for us and nothing else. I'll tell you, let me me share this with you, okay? Here's one of the things that I personally have experienced as I've been in relationship with Jesus Christ and what comes along with the kingdom that he has brought me into. And here's what I know. If you've been in relationship for any time at all, you've experienced these as well. And and one of them for me is the strong encouragement that comes from him and from the fellowship of believers. I cannot tell you what that does for me. All right? So when you're in the kingdom of God, here's something else that's going to happen. The enemy's going to know that as well. And you as a parent, there's nothing that would get under your skin more than someone messing with your children. Yeah, bring it all day long to me. But don't ever mess with my kids. And I know you know it. You want to defend them even when you know they're wrong. You want to step between them and the one that would be causing them trouble. The enemy knows who Jesus is and what he did. He knew what was happening when he came in on that donkey. And there is nothing, if I put myself in the shoes of Jesus, there is nothing that would irritate me more than when the enemy would mess with my family. And I know Jesus hates that. And here's the way the enemy messes with me. He says, you're not a preacher. Every week I preach, he says to me, you're not a preacher. You're not a preacher. 
you're not a preacher. I open the word and he says, you can't preach. That's what he says to me every week I preach. We're in, um, this is huge. I've been praying over the life of our church and myself. I'm like, I'm reading Francis Chan's book right now, Letter of the Churches or Letters to the Church. Not sure which way it goes, but but in it he says, he says, church, you don't expect enough from the Lord. You don't open your eyes to see the supernatural that he is bringing. And I've been praying, Lord, rain your spirit and your glory down on the life of our church. Let me see something spectacular that speaks of your glory. And so you know what he did? It's spring break. This past week was my sermon prep week. And Wendy and I, we walk into a Starbucks in, in Georgia. No one goes to Valdosta except for my brother and me and, and Wendy to visit him. But we walk into the Starbucks, and there's this, there's, there are no stickers on the back of my car that declare who I am. I don't, have a, I don't have a vertical church sticker or a Great Commission Collective sticker to say that I'm involved in a church. There's nothing to declare who I am except that I like Starbucks. Wendy and, I make it, Wendy and I make it to the door. I open it up for Wendy, and this woman, she gets out of her car, and so I held it, and she walked through. She goes up, and Wendy said, hey, we're, we're driving home from vacation. Why don't you just go before us, thinking she's going to work or whatever. So this woman, we engage in conversation with her. She turns to Wendy, and she said, and Wendy and her strike up a conversation what are you doing down here? This is what we're doing. And she said, yeah, I was down here. I was a part of a service, and we're doing this and that. And she looked square at me, and you know what she said? Out of the blue, you know what she said to me? You're a preacher. <laughs> and I'm like, there is nothing to declare that about me. And you know what? That was a sister in Christ responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This man needs to see something supernatural. And she said it. You're a preacher. So guess what this week has been? It's still been hard. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. If I'm not in relationship with Jesus Christ, I am not part of this. And I don't hear stuff like that. I don't receive the encouragement that comes through the Holy Spirit as he works. Fellowship. The fellowship of believers. There is, not, there is no one apart from receiving what Jesus Christ did for us in that week that can experience this. Hey, you're not a preacher, the enemy says to me. So I say, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to, and I challenge Charles and Jasper on this as well. Here's what I'm going to do. And I want you to do, to, to do it too. I want you to find 50 people the week you preach and I want you to ask them to pray for you. So I did. And guess what? I had way more than 50. The list just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. This is what happens when you are in relationship with the King of glory. He surrounds you with people that can hold you up and lift you up in your time of greatest need. And as I, and as I started sending messages, please pray for me, this is preach week, I'm, I'm weepy. I'm just weeping. As I'm sitting at my desk, I'm not even getting to my sermon, and I'm weeping over this. And so then, guess what happens? People re- start responding. And so, of course, all day on Tuesday, I'm weeping. Because people are praying for me. And so look at the fellowship of believers right now, and, and look at how you all bear responsibility for the Word of God that's delivered. You come this morning expecting to hear the Word of the Lord. 
And my, my desire is that you don't hear the word of the Lord through me. You just hear the word of the Lord. And so as you pray to God, Lord, preach through Todd, you bear responsibility in the very word of God that I declare. That's the body of Jesus Christ. Those who submit to the king of glory, that is what comes along with his eternal kingdom. You get encouragement, you get fellowship, you get Good Friday as he walks to the cross, as he gives himself on the cross to save you from yourself as you admit who you are, and then he rises again and his kingship hasn't ended. We are able to be in relationship with him in his eternal kingdom as we turn our eyes to him and we look to him to lead us in it exactly the way he wants to, not the way we want him to. I don't know if you're a believer here today. I don't know if you are in the kingdom or if you are not. But the message remains the same for everyone. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to bring us into the most spectacular kingdom known in in the history of mankind. And this is my prayer, church, that you would want King Jesus. So as we wrap this up, do you want King Jesus? Oh, Lord God, it is my constant prayer over the life of this church, over myself, my family, this church, that through you, Lord Jesus, as we are captivated by who you are and what you've done for us, our King of glory, that you would stir in us, Lord, our love and affection for you, so much so that we cannot resist who you are, and what you've done for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name.